Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 28. Well, having just come to the end of such a major section in the Book of Mormon, where the conversion story of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's is complete and they've uh, been received into the land of Jerishon, and where the story of the sons of Mosiah is made complete, uh, their 14-year mission has come to an end and we find them coming back to the land of Zarahemla, we now can move forward in the timeline. We will do so as we progress through the book of Alma, and as we might expect, uh, it will focus on Alma and his ministry. We know that as it moves forward, that Amulek and the sons of Mosiah will still play a key part, as will Zeezrom and uh, undoubtedly many others. We'll move into all of that in earnest as we uh, move into the Korahor story in particular, Uh, That's when it really feels like we've kind of turned the page on this major section in the book of Alma. But, of course, before doing that, we'll be able to read this chapter, Alma chapter 28, which provides us with Mormon's retrospective on what has taken place so far. And he'll provide us with three, and thus we see comments. And then, of course, we'll be able to read Alma chapter 29, which gets Alma's uh, beautiful perspective Although in the Book of Mormon, we really have one passage that is considered a true psalm, and that's the Psalm of Nephi. There are some characteristics, I think, in Alma chapter 29 that kind of seem like a psalm as well. In this chapter, then, Mormon provides us with cues and clues as to how we might best interpret what we have read so far, what conclusions we should draw from what we have read so far. Ogden and Skinner have put it this way, Mormon summarized lessons learned during the missions of Ammon and his brothers in Alma chapters 17 through 26, and lessons learned during the first 15 years of the reign of the judges, which really is is recorded all through Alma chapters 1 through this current chapter. Mormon will teach us in verse 8 of this chapter this principle that after sufferings, sorrows, and afflictions comes incomprehensible joy. Having noted this phenomenon several times throughout the chapters of Alma, we may now add another dimension to the discussion. Suffering and joy can exist side by side. And that really seems to be a theme in this chapter. I would add that suffering and joy joy can exist side by side. Then Ogden and Skinner continue, Because of the nature of this telestial world and the necessity of our being tried and tested here, there are many times in life when we joy in some of our loved ones and we sorrow, worry, and suffer for others. It is interesting what valuable lessons we learn from that curious mix. Mormon highlighted his salient lessons three times with the signal words, and thus we see. And that, of course, 
will happen here in this chapter. First, he says, and thus we see the inequality of man because of sin. Second, and thus we see the call to labor in the Lord's vineyards. And third, and thus we see the choice of sorrow or joy, destruction or salvation, and death or life. So Mormon will provide that very interesting contrast for us as he looks back upon what we've taken in so far in the book of Alma. It reminds us, of course, that our lives are meant to be a mixture of joy and of sorrow. And it is often up to us to interpret the stories of our mortal lives that are inevitably laced with tragedy. And, just as Mormon will point out in the beginning verses of this chapter, that are touched by malevolence, it is up to us to decide how to interpret these experiences and how to tell our story. As Mormon has shown us here, uh, we can tell our story in a way that is infused with gratitude and love, even amidst the trials and injustices that are perpetrated upon us. And in so doing, enlightened by the Spirit of the Lord, we can count our blessings and see our inevitable spiritual gains that come from walking with fidelity along the covenant path. Well, this is a shorter 14-verse chapter, and it opens in verses 1 through 6 with a section that seems almost inevitable, almost expected, uh, because of the way that we saw that the Lamanites uh, said that they would protect the people of Ammon as they came into the land of Jershon. We really would expect then that attack that an attack would come. It does, and what comes, as is described in verse 2, is a tremendous battle, even such an one as had never been known among all the people in the land from the time Lehi left Jerusalem. Yea, tens of thousands of the Lamanites were slain and scattered abroad. So, just as we have um, seen the great beauty and wonder of the conversion of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, now known as the people of Ammon, uh, there's so much tragedy in all of this as well, and the tragedy does continue. So Mormon will help us to kind of process that in these first six verses. Then in verses 7 through 9, Mormon will give us his retrospective on the 15th year of the reign of the judges. Then in verses 10 through 14, the final verses of this chapter, Mormon will discuss the varied effect of the death and the loss of war upon the wicked versus the effect that this has upon the righteous. He'll do so in a very dramatic and poetic way, telling us in verse 14, And thus we see the great call of diligence of men to labor in the vineyards of the Lord, and thus we see the great reason of sorrow, and also of rejoicing, sorrow because of death and destruction among men, and joy because of the light of Christ unto life. We'll come back, of course, and uh, read that verse as we come to the end of our reading with commentary. We can think about how Mormon's words here relate to Lehi's teachings to his son Jacob in 2 Nephi chapter 2. So now returning to verse 1. And now it came to pass that after the people of Ammon were established in the land of Jershon, and a church also established in the land of Jershon, Uh, So notice that that detail always seems to follow. The church is there, which also implies that the saving ordinances and covenants were there, that there was a priesthood mechanism in place that allowed for continual renewal for the people and allowed them to continue to walk along the covenant path. They most certainly have the fellowship of their fellow Nephite saints. 
They have each other's fellowship. They have the protection of the Nephite saints. They've they've gathered into this place. So this is truly a happy ending. Uh, but now we know that there's something looming on the borders of the land, and we can guess just what that is. And uh, sure enough, that, that is the direction that this is going to go in. So, the armies of the Nephites were set round about the land of Jershon, yea, in all the borders round about the land of Zarahemla. Behold, the armies of the Lamanites had followed their brethren into the wilderness. Now, the word Lamanites is all that is used here, but we do know that um, these are Lamanites who are very much informed by those among them that are known as Amalekites and who follow after the order of the Nehors. So we can guess that they are uh, heading this charge, even though they're not named here. So the armies of the Lamanites had followed their brethren into the wilderness. So remember, this is the wilderness that exists between the land of Nephi and the land of Zarahemla. And the people of Ammon had gone into that wilderness and had waited at the borders of Zarahemla until they were allowed into the land of Jerishon. So uh, these attacking uh, Amalekites and other Lamanites um, were also in that wilderness, and they were ready to attack. So verse 2, And thus there was a tremendous battle. Yea, even such an one as never had been known among all the people in the land from the time Lehi left Jerusalem. Yea, tens of thousands of the Lamanites were slain and scattered abroad. And we read this verse with great interest and wonder if this is Mormon's complete way of describing this uh, tremendous battle. And maybe now we'll learn that miraculously on the Nephite side, there was no more loss. Uh, those hopes are dashed in verse 3. Yea, and also there was a tremendous slaughter among the people of Nephi. Nevertheless, the Lamanites were driven and scattered, and the people of Nephi returned again to their land. And now this was a time that there was a great mourning and lamentation heard throughout all the land among all the people of Nephi. Yea, the cry of widows mourning for their husbands, and also of fathers mourning for their sons, and the daughter for the brother, yea, for the brother for the father, and thus the cry of mourning was heard among all of them, mourning for their kindred who had been slain. This really is hard for us as readers to take in and to fully comprehend and understand. We have followed the story of Lamoni and his people, and his father and his people, and anti-Nephi-Lehi and his people, and all these converted Lamanites, all the good that has come from that. Yet we can see that if they would not have come into the land of Jershon and become numbered among the Nephites, that all of this probably would not have happened. This is difficult for us to process, that such terrible mourning and sorrow and loss and suffering would accompany something so joyous. Mormon is purposefully setting this contrast up for us so that we can wonder over this. And uh, later in this chapter, he will address this question that's kind of formulating in our minds and this trouble that we feel as readers as we read this. Verse 6 says, And now surely this was a sorrowful day, yea, a time of solemnity and a time of much fasting and prayer. The prophet Joseph Smith once said something uh, with respect to this idea of great mourning and lamentation. More painful to me are the thoughts of annihilation than death. If I have no expectation of seeing my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and friends again, my heart would burst in a moment and I should go down to my grave. The expectation of seeing my friends in the morning of the resurrection 
cheers my soul and makes me bear up against the evils of life. It is like they're taking a long journey, and on their return, we meet them with increased joy. Uh, Quite interesting that he would say that, especially in light of this reunion between Alma and the sons of Mosiah, all that they had gone through. Thomas R. Valletta points out that there is a passage in section 42 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verses 45 through 47, that say really that we should mourn only for those who do not have a hope of a glorious resurrection. Natural as it is, of course, for us to mourn for those that we have lost, that, and this is uh, the Prophet Joseph Smith's point, the great sorrow and sadness would be for those who do not have that hope. Those three verses in Doctrine and Covenants section 42 say, Thou shalt live together in love, insomuch that thou shalt weep for the loss of them that die, and more especially for those that have not hope of a glorious resurrection. And it shall come to pass that those that die in me shall not taste of death, for it shall be sweet unto them. And they that die not in me, woe unto them, for their death is bitter. As we consider those three verses, that of course is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. It would seem that he actually experienced the bitterness of death uh, vicariously for us on our behalf, so that if we die in him, our death does not have to be bitter, but can be sweet. Uh, but for those who do not fully avail themselves of his suffering, their death will be bitter. Now again, now that Mormon has kind of set up all this, this conflict and trouble that we feel as we have read these opening verses of this chapter and how they're, they're so terribly juxtaposed with the joy of what has happened recently to the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi and how they were received into Jershon. He now says this in verse 7 through 9, And thus ended the fifteenth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. We might remember, by the way, that it wasn't so long ago that he told us that thus ended the fourteenth year, and the context then was that Alma and Amulek had come to the end of their mission, and Alma took Amulek into his own house. So now it's just one year later, but this flashback is done and these timelines have converged. And now as we come to the end of the 15th year of the reign of the judges, we're thinking specifically about the anti-Nephi-Lehites. Verse 8, And this is the account of Ammon and his brethren, their journeyings in the land of Nephi, their sufferings in the land, their sorrows and their afflictions, and their incomprehensible joy, and the reception and safety of the brethren in the land of Jershon. And now may the Lord, the Redeemer of all men, bless their souls forever. And this is the account of the wars and contentions among the Nephites, and also the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites, and the fifteenth year of the reign of the judges is ended. So there is Mormon's retrospective on the fifteenth year of the reign of the judges, and now he's going to help us reconcile this trouble that we feel. And um, as I mentioned earlier, it, it does call to mind Lehi's statement about opposition in 2 Nephi chapter 2. In fact, here's something from Elder Bruce Hafen in his book, The Broken Heart. He said, and in fact, he called this Lehi's paradox, he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. And then Elder Hafen writes, there is a link between sorrow, toil, affliction, and incomprehensible joy. Otherwise, there may be only innocence having no joy, for they knew no misery. Quoting their Lehi, of course, in Second Nephi chapter 2. 
So now in the final five verses, Mormon will help us to process this and interpret what we have seen so far. Verse 10, And from the first year to the fifteenth has brought to pass the destruction of many thousand lives. Yea, it has brought to pass an awful scene of bloodshed. And the bodies of many thousands are laid low in the earth, while the bodies of many thousands are moldering in heaps upon the face of the earth. Yea, and many thousands are mourning for the loss of their kindred, because they have reason to fear, according to the promises of the Lord, that they are consigned to a state of endless woe. While many thousands of others truly mourn for the loss of their kindred, yet they rejoice and exult in the hope, and even know, according to the promises of the Lord, that they are raised to dwell at the right hand of God, in a state of never-ending happiness. So here Mormon in verses 11 and 12 uses the word mourn and mourning. Uh, He uses it twice, but the context is entirely different. There is a mourning in verse 11 for the loss of their kindred because they have reason to fear according to the promises of the Lord. Then in verse 12, there is a mourning for the loss of their kindred, yet they rejoice and exult in the hope uh, that, that is given to them because of the promises of the Lord. So both groups are experiencing terrible loss because of death, and both are uh, given to mourn. But beyond that, these are two very different groups. The latter group, of course, has the hope and prospect of resurrection. This is a section from a conference talk by Elder Robert Day Hales that he gave in October of 1996. Quote, My friend came to accept the phrase, Thy will be done as he faced his own poignant trials and tribulations. As a faithful member of the church, he was now confronted with some sobering concerns, particularly touching were his questions. Have I done all that I need to do to faithfully endure to the end? This is a friend that had terminal cancer, by the way, or a terminal disease, at least, as it says. What will death be like? Will my family be prepared to stand in faith and be self-reliant when I am gone? We had the opportunity to discuss all three questions. They are clearly answered in the doctrine taught to us by our Savior. We discussed how he had spent his life striving to be faithful, to do what God asked of him, to be honest in his dealings with his fellow men and all others, to care for and love his family. Isn't that what is meant by enduring to the end? We talked about what happens immediately after death, about what God has taught us about the world of spirits. It is a place of paradise and happiness for those who have lived righteous lives. It is not something to fear. After our conversation, he called together his wife and the extended family, children and grandchildren, to teach them again the doctrine of the atonement that all will be resurrected. Everyone came to understand that just as the Lord has said, while there will be mourning at the temporary separation, there is no sorrow for those who die in the Lord. His blessing promised him comfort and reassurance that all would be well, and that he would not have pain, and that he would have additional time to prepare his family for his departure and even that he would know the time of his departure. The family related to me that on the night before he passed away, he said he would go on the morrow. He passed away the next afternoon at peace, with all his family at his side. This is the solace and comfort that comes to us when we understand the gospel plan and know that families are forever. Contrast these events with an incident which happened to me when I was a young man in my early 20s. While serving in the Air Force, one of the pilots in my squadron crashed on a training mission and was killed. I was assigned to accompany my fallen comrade on his final journey home to be buried in Brooklyn. 
I had the honor of standing by his family during the viewing and funeral services and of representing our government in presenting the flag to his grieving widow at the graveside. The funeral service was dark and dismal. No mention was made of his goodness or his accomplishments. His mind, his name was never mentioned. At the conclusion of the services, his widow turned to me and asked, Bob, what is really going to happen to Don? I was then able to give her the sweet doctrine of the resurrection and the reality that if baptized and sealed in the temple for time and all eternity, they could be together eternally. The clergyman standing next to her said, That is the most beautiful doctrine I have ever heard. So in that, I think Elder Hales is also drawing this incredible, uh, with this incredible story, is is drawing this comparison between these two types of mourning uh, in, in a very poignant way. And that's exactly what Mormon is doing for us here as well. He continues in verse 13 by saying, And thus we see how great the inequality of man is because of sin and transgression, and the power of the devil which comes by the cunning plans which he hath devised to ensnare the hearts of men. So, as Mormon is saying, is there an inequality of man that is part of the mortal experience? The answer is yes, there is. Inequity and inequality is part of the bargain here. Alma taught us earlier in Alma chapter 13 that there were some who had a greater advantage than others, and that had to do with whether they embraced the covenant in the pre-existent life, or the pre-earth life. Here, Mormon is making it very clear that this inequality of man is specifically because of sin and transgression and the power of the devil. Then, the cunning plans which he devises and that either unwittingly or not, people in this world participate in. That's the cause of the great inequality. There is, we can add, no inequality among men in terms of who was suffered for and who was atoned for. In the eyes of the Savior, all are alike unto God, and all have had the way opened before them if they will but embrace the atonement of Jesus Christ and his gospel. In this sense, then, I think we can see that it is the Savior Jesus Christ who put absolutely everything on the line so that ultimately there could be no inequality between man. Roger Keller points out that this is one of Mormon's and thus we see statements, and he says, the phrase thus we see is used by Mormon over 20 times to insert moral conclusions in the sections he wrote or abridged. Moroni used the phrase only once in Ether chapter 14, verse 25. Grant Hardy and Robert Parsons have written, Some passages can definitely be ascribed to Mormon. The abridgment of his contributions to the large plates in Mormon uh, chapters 1 through 7, his sermon and letters recorded by Moroni in Moroni chapters 7 through 9, and the explanatory comments that he inserted into his narrative. In some of these interpolations, he identifies himself. But it seems likely that the frequent thus-we-see comments are also Mormon, attempting to stress matters of particular spiritual importance to his readers. And now in the final verse of this chapter, we get Mormon's final and thus-we-see. And thus we see the great call of diligence to men to labor in the vineyards of the Lord. And that recalls again that great olive tree allegory that Jacob gave us, and that just kind of sets us up in our understanding of this entire plan. And every time there's just a little allusion to it like there is here. We can hearken back to what we learned there. Of men to labor in the vineyards of the Lord. 
And thus we see the great reason of sorrow and also of rejoicing. Sorrow because of death and destruction among men and joy because of the light of Christ unto life. So this is the way the Book of Mormon is. It requires us to take both of these things in as we read it and ponder it and study it. The Book of Mormon is a composite of both things, and uh, this kind of helps us, I think, to understand why Lehi said what he said in 2 Nephi chapter 2, verses 10-12. through 12. And because of the intercession for all, all men come unto God. Wherefore they stand in the presence of him to be judged of him according to the truth and holiness which is in him. Wherefore the ends of the law which the Holy One hath given, unto the inflicting of the punishment which is affixed, which punishment that is affixed is in opposition to that of the happiness which is affixed, to answer the ends of the atonement. For it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be a compound in one, wherefore it must, wherefore it should be one body. It must needs remain as dead, having no life, neither death, nor corruption, nor incorruption, happiness, nor misery, neither sense, nor insensibility. Wherefore it must needs have been created for a thing of naught. Wherefore there would have been no purpose in the end of its creation. Wherefore this thing must needs destroy the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes and all the power and the mercy and the justice of God. That passage almost uh, helps us to understand this concept on a cerebral level. And we know, of course, that it's so tied to agency and the sovereignty of each one of us as God's creations. And how his purposes can only become uh, valid or they can only come about if we continue to act freely as agents, persuaded by one spirit or the other, as Alma said, that every man receiveth wages from that spirit whom he listeth to obey. But it's now, after understanding that cerebrally, what Lehi has written, that, that Mormon has given this to us in Alma chapter 28, where we really feel the tragic reality of this, what it can mean when such malevolent forces are allowed to come into the land of Nephi, or excuse me, into the land of Jershon, and to destroy such innocent, fragile people. It's necessary, as the Book of Mormon teaches us over and over, for people to have the freedom to act in such wickedness. For only then can their efforts to act in righteousness culminate in an unimpeded return to the tree of life. And of course, it is the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the merits and mercies that flow therefrom that make all of this possible, that allow people to act in freedom, to move towards a destination that is either to their detriment or to their benefit. Mormon clearly understands this as he is wrapping this story up in Alma chapter 28 and giving us this thing to ponder upon. So this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 28. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. 
Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.